Well, good morning to you, and uh, welcome to Crossroads Church, and Merry Christmas. We are uh, 15 days away uh, from Christmas, and uh, kind of show of hands, how many of you uh, have or plan on kind of driving around town to look at Christmas lights? Anybody already done that? Oh, yeah, quite a few of you. Very good. Well, um, Amanda, one of our worship leaders, Amanda Kulaga and I, we have a little bit of a playful tension around Christmas. Um, she's the kind of person who absolutely loves the celebration and the pageantry of Christmas and all that like goes around that. In fact, if she was the senior pastor instead of me, we would start singing Christmas mu uh, uh, music in October. You know, uh, anybody with her? Yes, yeah, six of you. Oh yeah, whoa, more than I thought. I'll go over here to this side. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, she just loves everything that has to do uh, with Christmas, and even to the point like when Cozy 101 starts playing Christmas music on the radio, her family has a whole event around that, around that, that happening. Me, on the other hand, I'm like, you know, one of those silly people who believes that the Christmas season starts after Thanksgiving, which in my mind, yeah, okay, yeah, I told you this side, yeah, good, good. So which tells you, right, I'll talk to these people, that, uh, that you know, um, in that, and so we have this like tension. So because I believe, and I'm one of those silly people, in, my, in her mind, I'm like the Grinch who stole Christmas, all right? So we have this kind of like playful tension, and despite that, we are really good friends, and our families are good friends. And one of my most fondest memories of Christmas is several years ago, when our oldest kids uh, were very young, we got into a big van and our families together rode around town and we went and saw all of the Christmas lights. I mean, we went to the Tin Cup House. We went to Mike Zarnicki's neighborhood. By the way, our Mike Zarnicki won like the Chevy Chase Award last year for exterior illumination of the year. Like seriously, you should go check out his house. It's pretty amazing, yeah. And then we made it to King's Cross neighborhood and the whole night was filled with singing Christmas carols and sipping on hot chocolate and singing and dancing and I think that my heart grew three times that year. I mean, just looking in all the lights. Yeah, it was, it was quite amazing. Now, I share that story because this is the season of lights, isn't it? Like, everywhere we go, this is the season of lights. Our entire city is wrapped in millions and millions of twinkling lights. And for those of us who believe that is significant, those lights are important because those lights represent our faith. That those lights are the pillars of advent, of hope and love, joy and peace. And one of the things that we've said during this entire series is that when it comes to Christmas, the message of the Christmas season is that in a land, in a land of dwelling in deep darkness, light has dawned. That a land dwelling in deep darkness that is evil, light, or truth, or life, has dawned. It is this dawning light of scripture as to why our entire world is wrapped in little twinkling lights. And so throughout this Advent season, we've decided as a church to celebrate the importance of light in our lives. And in doing so, as we've walked through this, all of it really in preparation for the day that comes in just 15 days where we celebrate God's light, his son coming into this world. And so if you've been a part of this series over the last couple of weeks, in week one, we talked about darkness and the deep darkness that we know is in this world, that we walk in in this world. And then last week, we looked at probably what is the most famous of all Advent readings, that is Isaiah chapter 9, a passage of scripture that is quoted this time of year by millions of people in hundreds of thousands of churches all around the world, and the significance of this promise that was given where God was sending a child of light, and that we would know who this child of light is because he is 
the wonderful counselor, the hero God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Today, we're going to continue looking at this theme of light, and in order to do so, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 8. If you have a Bible, John chapter 8. If you don't, We'll put it on the screen like we do every week, and uh, if you've been a part of this, just know that over the last couple of weeks that my offer still stands, that if you're here today and you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, we would love to give you one. This church is so generous. We bought these really nice Bibles to give away this Christmas season to anybody who does not have a Bible, and so if that's you, when you leave today, you can just stop by the Welcome Center. You can ask for one. We'll give it to you, and that's our gift to you this Christmas. Now, as you turn to John chapter 8, know that in the Old Testament, Testament, uh, there was this celebration, this big feast called the Feast of Tabernacle. And when it came to the Feast of Tabernacle, the historians, old historians like Josephus, tell us that the Feast of Tabernacle was the most important, significant, most celebrated of all the feasts in the Old Testament. It was the biggest of all of them when it came to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and it was celebrated in Jerusalem. Now, one of the uh, features of the feast was this parade that had to do with water. They were celebrating Moses in the Exodus account when Moses was you know, walking with the people through the desert, and at this one point, Moses looks up to the heavens, he prays, he hits this rock, and water comes out, and the people had water in the Exodus as they're wandering through the desert. To celebrate that moment, they would have this huge parade on the Feast of Tabernacles, and what would happen is it would start in the temple, and thousands upon thousands of people would gather together at the temple, and they would march down the street to the pools of Siloam. You can still do this today, actually, if you go to Jerusalem, you can walk this path. They would walk down to these pools, the priest would dip down, take a pitcher, he would get water, he would hold it up, and then by the thousands, they would march back towards the temple. Now, when they got to the temple entrance, the shofar, the horns would, would blow, and the priest would take the water, and he would pour it on the altar in the courtyard. Now, it was this huge and significant celebration. It was this huge spectacle, really remembering the faithfulness of God in the desert. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles had this parade with water, and it had this huge significance around water, but it was also hugely significant in terms of the imagery of light. And so, what would happen also during the Feast of Tabernacles is really the celebration of the Jewish deliverance of, uh, from Egypt, where God led the people during the Exodus account, if you remember this, by a pillar of light at night. And so the way that they would celebrate this during the Feast of Tabernacles, they had these lampstands in the temple in the courtyard of the women. That was the area that it was in. Now, when I say lampstand, don't think of like a little lampstand that you can put on your table or even in your house. These things were massive. There was four of them, and they stood 75 feet high. In fact, they would not fit in this room. And on each lampstand, there was four bowls, and they were filled with oil, and they would light these things every single night. And historians tell us that when they were lit, when these huge lampstands with all of these bowls were lit, that not only would the temple area be lit up, not only would all of Jerusalem with its, you know, yellow bricks would be lit up, but you could see this light from miles upon miles upon miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was this magnificent scene of light that would just cover all of Israel. And it was only during this time, during the Feast of Tabernacles, where thousands would join the choir, where parades would happen, where there was joy and dancing in the street, where these lampstands would be lit up for the display of light for everyone to see. It was a magnificent scene. And it's at the end 
of this Feast of Tabernacle, as the lights begin to dim, that Jesus, in this, you know, in this, in this spectacular, festive celebration, utters these words in John chapter 8, that I am the light of the world, that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, just imagine for a moment, the festival of light is ending, the priests are cleaning up, the party's, you know, dying down, and Jesus steps into whoever's there listening, and he looks at him and he says, hey, all of this celebration, all of the parades, all the festival, all the eating, all the feasting, all the dancing that we've done, all of it, in all of it, I'm the fulfillment of it all, that I am the light of the world. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are standing next to him, and immediately they respond, no, you're not. That's not true. That, that's, that's, not, that's not right. That's not who you are. Verse 13, and so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. Jesus, this is not true. Now, just so that we're clear, this isn't the you know, first time that Jesus has done something like this. In fact, the, just a few weeks earlier, when Jesus pulls off one of the greatest miracles that we have recorded for us in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus there declares that I am the bread of life and that whoever eats of the bread will never hunger again. Just a few months earlier than that, Jesus is going through the countryside of Samaria and he runs into this woman at a well. And after what had to be a pretty uncomfortable conversation for this woman, Jesus looks at her and says to her, I am living water. And whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again, to which the woman replied, Sir, where do I get this water that you're speaking about? And now here at the end of this feast, where the light of God is, is celebrated, Jesus goes, hey, I'm it. I'm the light of the world. Now, we have to realize that this imagery was so powerful that the idea of light and, and darkness were powerful images in an ancient world. And for us today, it's a little bit lost on us because we live in a world of artificial light. Like we don't ever really know true darkness, but in the ancient world, you lived in the light. That's, that's how you lived your life. When darkness happened, there was, there was nothing that you really did. You, you lived in the light. And so this is vivid imagery that we actually see John, the writer of this gospel, used multiple times throughout his writing. In fact, let me just give you a few. In John chapter one, right at the beginning in verse four, here's what he writes. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, that's John the Baptist, not John the disciple who's writing this, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John, in chapter 3 of his gospel, continues this theme of light when he writes this in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
And so when Jesus is standing in this temple area as the lights are dying down and says that I am the light of the world and whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness but will have the light of life, this is a significant moment. Not just biblically and theologically, but historically speaking, this is a significant moment because what Jesus is claiming is that he is the promised child of Isaiah chapter 9. What he's claiming is to be the Messiah, the Savior, the one that they've all been looking for, that he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, everlasting Father, that he's the one they've been looking for, which raises a question, doesn't it? Why wouldn't everyone follow the light? I mean, if everybody was, was looking for this, if everybody was looking for this child of light promised some 700 years by the prophet Isaiah, when the light finally shows up, why wouldn't everyone follow the light? And the answer to that question is because light exposes what's hiding in the darkness. See, when we read the scriptures, basically there are three types of people when light is shown upon them. That as light is shown upon a person, the Bible says, when that light comes upon them, they, one type of person, adjust to the lights. That person the Bible calls wise. There's another type of person that when the light is shown on them, that they duck the light, they, they kind of move out of the light. The Bible calls that person a fool. And then there's other people that when the light is shown upon them, they don't you know, adjust to the light, they don't duck the light, they actually run from the light. And the Bible calls those people evil. See, when the light shines, our, it, it exposes our cockroaches, doesn't it? The rats of our life scurry. Our sin is seen. It reveals what's going on in our hearts. And the Pharisees and the scribes here, who we will later come to find out, are the type of people that run from the lights, look at Jesus and go, you're not it. You're not the light. You're not the one that we've been waiting on. Because if the claims of Jesus are true, what it means is that everything that they've built their lives upon, the religion that they've practiced that has made them very wealthy and powerful men, what it means is it's all wrong. It means that, that somehow they missed what God was actually after. And as the light shines, their pride took over. And they look at Jesus and they go, no, you're not. Like what you're bearing, the witness that you're bearing, it's not true. Jesus, this is not who you are. And Jesus replies to them in verse 14, he says this. He says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, this is a bit of a jab at the Pharisees. See, the religious leaders of the time were constantly judging people. That's what religion do. That's what legalism does. It constantly judges. It's constantly measuring people of whether or not they measure up. Religion judges. Religion condemns. Jesus forgives. Jesus offers grace and mercy. I mean, just imagine for me, uh, with me for a moment that if Jesus, the purpose of him coming into this world was to condemn, was to judge people. 
I mean, condemnation is easy, right? Like, like Jesus would just go around and the whole gospels would just fill, be filled up with Jesus finger pointing and giving lectures. And the lectures would probably look a little bit like this. Hey, Dave, <laughs> nice to see you. Here's everything that you've done in your life. You've sinned. Good luck, buddy. You're going to hell, right? Hey, Sally, here's everything you've done in your life. Good luck. You're going to hell. Like condemnation would be easy. But the truth of the gospels, the truth of scripture is not so much found just in John 3, 16, which all of us church people love, but actually in the verse that follows John 3, 17, where Jesus says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, circle, underline, highlight, but rather in order that the world might be saved through him. And we see this in the life of Jesus. We, we see how this is lived out in his ministry. We watch as Jesus stands beside the adulteress, how he ate with the outcast, how he healed the unclean, how he restores the crippled. In his final moments, as he's breathing his last breath, he prays to the Father, Father, forgive those who have beaten me, whipped me, mocked me, humiliated me. As he's breathing that final breath and the thief next to him is dying and realizes who he is dying next to and believes, Jesus looks at him and says, bro, tomorrow or today, we're gonna be in paradise together. And then as he brings his final breath, breathes that final breath and dies, he dies so that you might be forgiven. See, at this moment, Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, and as the crowd is pushing in around him, the tension is thick, and he said, look, I didn't come to judge. I didn't come to bring condemnation on this world. I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world's. And let me tell you, that's why sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes hung out with Jesus. The entirety of the Jewish people, they were exhausted by the judgment that religion brought. They were exhausted by the condemnation from the religious leaders and what they found in Jesus was forgiveness and grace and mercy. Jesus continues on in verse 16. He says, even if I, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And so Jesus goes on here and he says, look, even if I was judging, my judgment would be valid. It would be true. In Jewish law, you needed two witnesses to validate something, and Jesus goes, I have them. I'm bearing witness about myself, and not only is it me, but my Father is also bearing witness, and everything that we do together is in perfect alignment, that we're in this together, that, that we're moving in this as one. And the Pharisees look at Jesus in verse 19, and they say to him, oh, Jesus, where is your Father? Where is your father. Sometimes in the celebration, in the pageantry of, of Christmas, we, we kind of forget the weight of it all, don't we? We forget the preciousness of, of Mary, the small town teenage girl with simple faith, so genuine, that when the angel Gabriel comes to her and tells her that, that she will be with child, she goes, if God said it, I believe it. Like we lose sight of how costly that kind of obedience actually was. I mean, just remember with me for a moment that Mary is engaged to a man to be married. 
And by saying yes to God and carrying this child, it will probably cost her everything. Her marriage to Joseph. In Jewish law, there was a provision. Culturally, there was an expectation that Joseph would, would divorce her. That according to Jewish law, that if a woman was found to be a fornicator and an unwed woman was to be bearing a child, the law was very specific, that you make an example of her, that no one will ever go near her again. To say yes to God means from this point forward that she will live with the scorn of those who do not understand and do not believe. That she will carry the scarlet letter the rest of her life. That every time she shares her story, looks of shame will follow. And it's not like that she had the benefit of knowing the whole plan like we do. I mean, for the next 33 years until Jesus walks up out of that grave and proves who he says he is, for the next 33 years, culturally, she will be labeled a whore. And Jesus, the son of a whore. Tell us, Jesus. Who's your daddy? Boy, where is your father? A question that undoubtedly Jesus had heard hundreds of times in his life by those who intended to mock him, humiliate him. The preciousness of Mary's faith to say, God, whatever you want, I'm your servant. And with that statement, she's willing to let go of her comfort, her reputation, her marriage, her identity. In the biggest moment of her life, this teenage girl, she does not flinch. She says, Lord, your will be done. And is it any wonder, 33 years later, when her own son is staring down the biggest moment of his life as he looks death in the eye through the most brutal execution device that was ever created by humanity, that he lifts his eyes to the heavens and in the same attitude of his mom says, your will be done. The Pharisees, they take their shot at Jesus and Jesus answers them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. See, when it comes to the Pharisees and the scribes, these are highly religious people. They were experts in the law. And today, when we think about the Pharisees and the scribes, we, we tend to think of them as these like really self-religious hypocrites, self-righteous hypocrites. But that's not how the first century Jew saw them. They viewed them as the best of the best. Like if anybody had a chance with God, it was these guys. It's probably fair to say that in the first century that nobody was more religious than the Pharisees and the scribe. And so what Jesus says to them is, is that you don't, you don't know God. You don't know me, and therefore you don't know my father. And if you don't know my father, <laughs> you don't know God. Like there's this belief that we hold on to, that religion always gets us to God. Like this is just a belief that we live with, that religion gets, to us, gets us to God. If it's religious, then, then God's probably in it. 
But as the light of John chapter 8 begins to shine on our souls, the constant message of the gospel is that religion is not the way to God. It's not the way to God. That Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says to them, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't know God. Your problem is you don't know me and therefore you don't know the Father. And if you don't know me, you don't know the Father and you don't know God. That's your problem. Verse 20. These words he, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, several times in the life of Jesus, he, had, he said something to this effect, that I'm going and where I go, you'll not be able to find me. You'll look, but you're not going to be able to find me. And every time Jesus said those words, the Jewish people would gather who heard them would look at each other and they would ponder and they would wonder, what, what is it that he actually means by this? What is it that he, where is it that he's actually going? And in this moment, as, as Jesus says these words that he had said so many times in his life before, but in this moment, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish people that are in the crowd, they hear a hint of death in his language. And they begin to wonder, is he going to kill himself? Like, is this man going to commit suicide? Is that why I can't follow him? And in all of it, it's, they're going down that road because they're totally missing it. Because what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm, I'm the promised child of Isaiah 9, that I'm the dawning light of the prophecy, that I'm the point of the Old Testament. I am the Messiah, the suffering servant. I'm what everybody's been waiting on. That's who I am. But because you don't understand the Old Testament and what's going to happen is, is that after I leave and ascend to the Father, you're going to keep looking for the Messiah. You're going to keep looking for the Savior. You're going to keep seeking and you're not going to be able to find. And if you've ever been to Israel, this is exactly what's happened that this is exactly what's taken place, that if you go to Israel, there's always some rumor of some guy up in the mountains who's, who's the expectant next Messiah. They're still looking. And that's what Jesus means here, that you're gonna keep waiting for the fulfillment even though I've already come. He's like, boys, I'm standing in front of you talking to you. You can see me with your own eyes. We're having the conversation, and yet in your pride, you don't see. And after I leave, you're going to keep looking. You're going to keep looking for the promise of Isaiah chapter 9. You're going to keep looking for the Savior, even though the Savior has already come. And as Jesus is saying these words to him, he looks at him and says, you're going to keep looking, but not only are you going to keep looking, in your looking, in your seeking, you're going to die in your sin. Now, I want you to notice something here. That word sin is not plural, it's not sins. That word is singular, it is sin. And what Jesus is saying is that your great sin is unbelief. Your unwillingness to believe that I am the fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 9. That I've come as the savior of the world. See, every person, every person, that ends up lost forever is not because they've sinned too much. Let me say that again. Every person who ends up lost forever is not because they've sinned too much. There is no such thing as sinning too much. 
that every person who is lost forever is because of the one great sin of unbelief. An unwillingness to believe that Jesus died and rose again as the light of this world. And in his death, he, he offers forgiveness of sin, and in his resurrection, he offers the gift of salvation to every single one of us. The unwillingness to believe that truth is what separates us from God and leaves people, people wondering how to deal with their sin problem. There's not multiple sins. There is one sin of unbelief that Jesus says ultimately will send you to death. Verse 21. The people responded in such a way that they did not understand. Next word. Next one. Uh, These words, right there. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me, he says, is with me. That he has not left me alone, for I will always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, come on, many believed. Now, what Jesus is speaking about in these, in these words here is he's talking about the crucifixion. And what he's saying is that the evidence of the crucifixion will be so overwhelming that people will come to understand that this wasn't just another human who died a brutal death, but through the cross, they will come to believe and see who Jesus is, and he is who he says he is, and that's exactly what happens. It's why when Jesus says that I am the light of the world, it's not just biblically and theologically significant, it's historically significant because we're still believing it today. This is his mission. That he and God the Father are in on this together. That this is the plan. Like the crucifixion isn't because the plan went bad. Crucifixion is because the plan was always to seek and save those who were lost. To give his life as a ransom for many to be the fulfillment of the images and pictures of the old covenant, to come and to sacrifice himself as the lamb of God for the sins of the worlds. Those who believe, not just those who are trying to get their act together, not just those who have found religion, but those who believe are offered forgiveness, are given salvation, have new life in Jesus. Those that follow the lights will find the life that their soul has always longed for. And so today, for us, the light shines on each one of our souls. And the question is, is when the light shines, do you duck? Do you run? Or are are you what the Bible calls wise? See, if Jesus is stirring something in your heart today, as the light shines on you, what a wise person would do is explore what that means. And if you want to walk that road, we would love to do it with you. We have a text line. You've already seen it today, but you can text the name of Jesus to 720-513-1933. Will you bow your head and pray with me? Father, in a season where we celebrate light everywhere, 
Lord, it's in moments like this where we realize the significance of that light in our lives. That your son came into this world as the promised child of Isaiah chapter 9. That he is the light of the worlds. And in that, Lord, we celebrate. In that, we, we come together and we sing. In that, as we drive around our cities and our neighborhoods and see lights, we're reminded that that's just not festive, that's our faith. And so today, Lord, I pray that as we have the light shined into our souls, that we would not be like the Pharisees who run. We wouldn't even be people who duck. But Lord, it, we would be a people who adjust our lives to the light and truth and life that is shown to us. And so Lord, I pray that this Christmas, Lord, our celebration of lights would be that you are the light of the world and that whoever follows you doesn't have to walk through the darkness, but actually gets to live a life that our soul longs for. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that I pray, amen. Today as a church, we gather to celebrate what Jesus spoke about in those last words of John chapter eight that at the crucifixion, his body would be broken. And today, we remember and we celebrate. We sing, we dance, just like the Old Testament in the Feast of Tabernacles, because we are forgiven. And so today we remember. And we take the cup, represents the blood of Jesus, that by giving his life, we can find life. And so we drink and we celebrate. Today as a church, a body, as children of light, we're gonna sing the Christmas songs that we love to sing, lifting our voices in celebration to the God who gave so much. During that time, if you need prayer, we have a banner back here that says prayer. There'll be people there if you need something that you're struggling with, a tension that you're going through. Maybe you have a, a praise to give to God or you just need a blessing for your family this Christmas. You can make your way to the banner and we'll pray for you there. Online, you can click the button. I'm gonna ask everybody in house to stand as we lift our voices in song today. <laughs> 